Hello, Wounded Healers. How's it going? Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist in Chicago, and I am so excited to be with you today. And I'm really excited to share today's guest with you. And before I do that, I just I just wanted to say thanks. I am just really appreciative of the folks who send messages, the folks who are patrons, and the folks who are just listening. I look at the download numbers and sometimes I think about all y'all are people. <laughs> it's not just numbers and it's not about me and the success of the podcast. It's really, you know, I really desire to build community with this. And even though I don't talk to every single one of you, there's a part of me that is sending love and appreciation to every single person who's listening. So I just wanted to say thank you. And also before I introduce today's guest, so Melody, I'll just tell you, Melody Lee is today's guest. They are amazing. We had such a wonderful conversation and I wanted to give a super duper major plug for their platform, Inclusive Therapists. So if you're a therapist and you're listening to this, there is a particular platform where most therapists advertise their services. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to get sued. But that platform, my practice, Head Heart Therapy, we actually decided to leave that platform this year. You know, there's been controversy over the years about how inclusive that platform is. And apparently, I guess, only once in the last however many years that they've had their magazine, there's only been one person of color that's been on their cover. And Inclusive Therapist has been the absolute answer to ending our relationship with this other company. And it truly is amazing. Melody is such a powerful force in this world to be reckoned with. And I just, I thank them from the bottom of my heart for creating this beautiful space. And, you know, a lot of therapists are like, oh, does it actually get referrals? Are people looking at it? Yes, we get referrals all the time. And the thing that's really cool about it, I think, by the way, Melody's not paying me for this. I'm just saying this because I true. this is like a true endorsement from a user of the platform. We get so many referrals from it. And the thing that's really especially cool about it is the referrals that we get are generally more aligned with the type of work that we already do. Right. So if somebody's just, you know, finding you on some random platform or they just find your website, they might not really be tuned into everything that you do. But because Inclusive Therapist is really putting forward, you know, talking about how you work with marginalized populations and how do you feel about social justice, we get clients who are into that stuff too. So just a plug. If you want to sign up for inclusivetherapist.com, I highly recommend it. So commercial out of the way, let me introduce you to Melody Lee. So Melody Lee is a colony-born migrant and diasporic settler on Turtle Island. They are a queer therapist of color, mental health liberation activist, and keynote speaker. They founded Inclusive Therapists, a mental health directory and community that celebrates and centers people with marginalized identities, especially queer, trans, Black, Indigenous people of color. Melody offers collective care and education focusing on decolonizing mental health and healing racialized trauma. So please enjoy this really heartful, amazing conversation with Melody Lee. Melody, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. It's my honor to be here. 
Oh, it's my honor. <laughs> no, it's my honor. No, it's my honor. We can fight for the honor. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, I'm really glad you're here. Thank you. Yeah. So I can just kind of let folks know how I found out about you. My practice is part of the Inclusive Therapist Network, and you're just a badass doing some badass shit in the world. So I've been following you ever since I found out about inclusive. (laughs) I see the look on your face like, oh, I've been following you. And I'm just like in awe of how you're just so powerful in such a really beautiful, important way right now. So I'd love for you to tell people more about what you're doing in the world. Well, Sarah, firstly, so grateful to be in community with you and with others as well. And to hear these words, yeah, I am a little bit taken back because it feels like most of my day is spent emailing people. Like it's not glamorous. I'm just emailing an email machine. And so to hear this, it actually does fuel my soul. Mm. A little bit about inclusive therapists for those that are you know, hearing about it for the first time, we are way more than a director. We are a community that celebrates the strengths of and also centers the needs of people with marginalized identities, especially the BIPOC and Two-Spirit LGBTQ plus intersection. And we are a community of mental health providers, healers, therapists, where we you know, learn with one another. I think education is a big part of it. And we also mobilize to advocate for anti-oppressive liberatory practice to further this field of mental health. Yeah. And you're kicking ass at it. (laughs) You really are. Yeah. I hope it's affirming. And I, I feel like I spend my days all on email too. So people are seeing what you're doing, obviously. And I think that's sometimes we feel like we're doing it in a vacuum. And I see it and I honor it and I know other people are too. Well, thank you. I'm receiving that. And it's weird because there are times when I want to be seen and then there are other times when I'm like, oh, so I just want to be in a hole and do this thing. And so I have my days too. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear more about like the inner workings of Melody. If you want to share, like I love therapist origin stories. So why did you become a therapist? What was your path to getting there? Anything you want to share in that realm is is good. Sure. Happy to share. So my origin story, my paternal name, Lay, means child of the tree. My maternal name, mm-hmm. Lum, means forest. So there's a lot of tree presence, spirit in my lineage. My element is wood. Mm-hmm. And when I share that with folks, like no one's surprised. They're like, yes, that makes sense. I have embodied kind of the, I'm told, you know, the strength of wood, this grounded presence. And at the same time, um, kind of taking in what's in the environment and hopefully putting some good things back out there. My lineage, I'm from a lineage of fisher people and my people are from Hong Kong. And so Mm. I was born in colonized Hong Kong when it was a British colony. That is Mm. their story. I don't use his story anymore. Their story of Mm, um, my ancestors. Thank you. My ancestors, my elders. And so growing up in colonial Hong Kong really does inform my practice and Mm. the community work that I do. My work is grounded in decolonialism and decolonization, anti-oppression, because it is so intimate to me. So growing up in colonial Hong Kong, 
Without question, since birth, I have become indoctrinated and have internalized colonial ideology, you know, white supremacy, cis-heteronormativity, classism, ableism, all of that. I embodied that without choice. Mm. And that was my education system. That is what surrounded me in media, you know, in an East Asian body, seeing thin white models on the on the billboards, you know, that was my upbringing. And at the same time, I feel really fortunate that my elders and family continue to instill our Native culture in me. But straddling both can become complicated, especially when I'm in school and I'm told I'm not allowed to speak my native language. I had to speak English. In Um, Hong Kong, you were told you weren't allowed to speak. Yes. Wow. Uh And what Chinese dialect was your native? Cantonese. Cantonese. Okay. Yes. And thank you for asking. And so there's a there's a lot of this and classism is connected to colorism. And we see that a lot in Hong Kong as well. And so these are things that I embodied. So my prejudices, my biases were internalized. And at the same time, the harmful part is when I internalize this ideology, I'm actually learning to hate myself, right? to think less of myself and to reject my own people, my own people's way of being. So Hong Kong officially stopped being a British colony in 1997. We are supposed to have... Yes, it's very recent. Whoa. You seem surprised. wow. Fuck off. Like, Mm -hmm. what? Okay. You're you're not the only one that's surprised. (laughs) Absolutely. This is the reaction I get a lot because when I talk about colonization, oftentimes people think this is something that happened, Mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of years ago. This is very recent. Mm. And also that, of course, a coloniality right? The internalization of colonial constructs and coloniality of power that continues to exist, even when, you know, a place is mm-hmm. politically, you know, has shifted. And of course, the colonial project is still continuing on Turtle Island where we are today. And so with all of that, Hong Kong is supposed to have sovereignty for 50 years. And Unfortunately, communist China decided that they're not going to uphold that end of the agreement. And right now, um, my Hong Kong people are hurting because Mm -hmm. of a lot of really oppressive practices that are happening. And so my parents, alongside others, had foresight that things are probably going to get oppressive, chaotic. And so we had the privilege to migrate to Mm -hmm. what is called so-called Canada. And so, you know, landing in Canada as an immigrant came with its own set of challenges as well. And so... How old were you? I was eight years old. Oh, wow. Uh That's a tender age. It is. It is. And trying to, of course, you know, acculturate as quickly as possible. And again, there's this another level of rejecting our people's way of being that includes our ways of tending to ourselves and our wellness, collective mm-hmm. wellness, collective care, all these things I just started to reject. And that was really hard, you know, between me and my parents. Can I ask a question about that Absolutely. too? Absolutely. Was the move towards acculturation, was that something that you internally felt like you had to do? Was that your parents saying you had to do it? Was it just the people around you, you know, othering you and you wanting that to change? Like, what was it that drove that for you? 
I love that question. And I actually remember very clearly the first day of school. And the first day of school, I told myself, I'm going to learn Canadian English as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible. I'm just going to master this. To the extent where I actually, my first degree, I majored in English. And now Mm. looking back, now I think twice. I'm like, was I, you know, worshiping the language of my colonizers? Was I that deeply indoctrinated, perhaps? And how much of that Mm. was survival? It's really hard to unblend because I needed that. And at the same time, I also lifted that up as something that I thought I revered. And so it's complicated. Mm -hmm. And so then I had a different identity. I had an identity of a migrant and an immigrant and seeing my family, my parents navigate that. And so as I grew older, and I think another part of it is we were also indoctrinated into uh, colonial Christianity. Mm. And so as, uh as a queer person of color that was raised to worship white Jesus, Apparently, a white homophobic <laughs> Jesus. Um, oh, rude. That is not, what I what denomination ish <laughs> were? It was the Anglican Church, right? Okay. Back in Hong so Kong. just the general. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's all of these ruptures that mm-hmm. happen when you're asking about my internal processing. It's on one hand, loving my parents and wanting to honor them, at the same time, needing to fit in to acculturate. And also knowing that this religious practice is hurtful to me and knowing that it's harmful to others and how do I hold all of that together? And Mm -hmm. so that's kind of what informed, you know, these experiences really inform my practice today. I eventually, I did a lot of things in life. I was a food writer for eight years. I love storytelling around food and culture. That's something important to me. I did a couple different things and then eventually became a therapist. And after coming out of school and deciding what my practice is going to look like, I knew that it would be really difficult for me. I eventually moved to Austin, Texas. I knew it would be really hard for me to find a place to work where I can show up fully as I am And also knowing that folks that come in will be fully embraced. Especially in Texas. Uh Uh-huh. Especially in Texas. And so I was so fortunate to be able to connect with fellow, you know, social justice oriented, especially POC therapists and kind of creating our collective and also started to co-lead Austin Therapists of Color, kind of coming together in community and eventually knowing that there's this need and other people from other cities saying, we want this too. How can we collaborate? That is how inclusive therapists came to be, knowing that the client in me, the service user in me, wants a simpler, safer way to find a therapist that would get me and celebrate my full being. And also the therapist in me knows that I also need folks to grow along with folks that are on this path, this decolonial path alongside me, where we can support one another, challenge one another, extend resources to one another. And here we are. Yeah. Well, what I think is so magical about that, that I really kind of click into is 
you were like, okay, I'm not going to be able to find what I need out there. So I'm just going to make it. I'm going to make it myself. And that's exactly what I did too. And I love, I just love that. Like you seem like you can manifest the fuck out of anything and that I appreciate in a person. (laughs) Oh, wow. Thank you. Receiving. And I love that that resonates with you too. And Mm -hmm. I would say that's one of my strengths of noticing unmet needs and then in the quest to find resources and saying, oh, that doesn't exist, then that is what ignites my fires. Then I will make it happen. I will create it. I will do what I need to do, talk to whoever I need to. So there's a scrappy side of me in that way. Yeah. And I, I love too, because I think what came to my head is, oh, that's what makes a good business owner. And then I was like framing it in terms of capitalism, where that's how people can like use that for evil. you know, Uh and taking advantage and making it all about the money. I was just sitting with some marketers from a treatment center today, and they were talking about trying to be the anti-treatment just because of how capitalistic residential treatment is in this country and Mm -hmm. how much that's like fucking patients over. So I just love when it's like using these powers to actually change the world for the positive. We need more folks who can manifest in that way. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's a fine balance. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And what I'm attempting to do is, yes, on one hand, supporting our community, therapist members, wanting them to thrive. And on the other hand, there's this mission to really dismantle this capitalistic field as it is. And how to balance both is where I need community, where we each contribute and chip away at the areas that we need to while also tending to one another. Mm-hmm. Have you connected with Shauna Marie Brown yet? I have yet to, and I am a big fan of her yes. work. Yes, you have to. Like, yes, because I got to take her decolonizing therapy for Black folks course and had our team take it. And like you're talking about this balance of wanting to dismantle and then create a new system, but having to work within the system to do that is, it's just exhausting. I don't need to tell you that. (laughs) It can be, it can be daunting. There are times when I lose sleep, when I ask myself, like, what am I doing? At the same time, when I come back to the day-to-day and saying every decision, every choice I make, every conversation that I have makes a difference, right? Like, for example, I'm still in clinical practice. And when I'm engaging with service users on conversations about finance and fees, like how the approach, how do I tend to those conversations with care in itself is already making a difference, Yeah, is dismantling in ways. And Mm. so there's so many, what may seem like minute ways, but if we are all on this path together, we are making a bigger difference. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, you know, abolishment as well of these, Mm -hmm. you know, violent colonial structures and this industrial complex. But every single one of these intentional choices we make is adding up towards that. That is a message I will need to replay over and over when I get overwhelmed in those times where I feel like it doesn't matter. You're not doing anything. Like, what are you doing? Just spinning your wheels. But yeah, it's literally like tiny, tiny chips away. Yes. So what are we destroying first? Or (laughs) because I'm like, okay, where do we go? What are we focusing on right now? Like, how do you prioritize for yourself? Mm. 
That is a great question. And this is where I get really inspired by community, just seeing what Mm -hmm. folks are doing. Collaborations are really important to me. And so something I'm working on, for example, is creating space for decolonial CEU trainings, talking about Mm -hmm. things that they don't want to teach us or they don't want to talk about, the unspeakables Mm -hmm. in grad school and conventional trainings and saying, okay, if this doesn't exist, how do we create our own? How do we create process groups or consultation groups that is anti-oppressive and abolition-oriented? So those are in the works. But in terms of, you know, smashing things, I love smashing things. I can can (laughs) definitely get smashy. Still, yes, we are working in these systems. The first thing that comes to mind is the DSM, Mm -hmm. where a lot of people rely on diagnosis in order to be able to receive the care that they Mm -hmm. need. At the same time, the DSM is, it perpetuates (laughs) so much harm and Mm -hmm. pathologizing the other. And so are there ways that we can make movement in that And it has shifted over time. Like, can we continue that momentum while we're still operating in this system? And more recently, I have registered a new nonprofit. I'm talking about it for the first time. (gasps) Exclusive scoop. Tell me all about it. It's called Mental Health Liberation. And so by starting the Inclusive Therapist Directory, It's been just so amazing to see all these folks say, finally, I have a place where I can feel safer to find a therapist. Mm. You know, our community is full of diverse, vibrant spectrum of therapists, which I love. At the same time, we're noticing that therapists with marginalized identities also tend to fill up really quickly because they're just so few of us. And so while the directory is great at doing the bridging work, We also need longer term vision. And that's where mental health liberation comes in, where I started asking, what are the barriers that is preventing therapists with marginalized identities, especially QT BIPOC therapists, um, neurodivergent and disabled therapists from entering into the field? And Mm -hmm. I've narrowed it down to three big barriers. One is school. Yes. Let's talk about that when you're done with this list. I'm sorry. I'm so excited. Absolutely. (laughs) One is school. That's a biggie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Second is licensure, the Mm -hmm. licensure process, licensing exams where therapists of color are more likely to have to repeat these exams, which are expensive because these are exams that are written by white people for white people. And so I remember taking these exams and thinking, they asked me, well, in this situation, what would you do? So I had to think code switch. If I was a white person working with a white person, this is what I would do. But that's not necessarily my true answer. So there's that. And then third is supervision. We still Mm. have this system of supervision where interns and associates are already making a lower wage, lower income, and having to supplement their supervisor's wages in a way. Yeah. And how the power dynamics come into play with all of that. And so that is where mental health liberation comes in, where we want to offer funding to as, yes, as, you know, an intermediate way to just help folks get to the finish line. Mm. And then as we have more people come together to support this vision, then we're going to get smashy. Ooh, count me in. 
Mm-hmm. Let's talk about school. And I'd love to just share my experience because I teach at a local university where I actually got my master's degree. And the thing that I've noticed, particularly with students of color, like a lot of the students of color that I, I would have in my classes had several jobs, were also trying to do their internship at the same time, which is unpaid, right? Everybody knows that. And I remember one student, like he was really struggling in the class. And, you know, I was like, dude, what's going on? He's like, well, I work nights. And I'm like, so you go to your internship during the day and then you work overnight. So like, when do you sleep? When do you write your papers? Like he just couldn't do it. And I was so mad at the school for not telling this kid, like this system is not set up for you, right? And then him paying this degree is at least $60,000 for somebody to get. And so I was like so furious at the school. And as the professor, I'm always like, how am I supposed to support these students in this system that is so rigid? And I mean, they do have the part-time all of that, but it's not adequate. And then we have, of course, like just academia is so problematic in general, but like there need to be different options. Definitely, definitely. When a person's survival needs aren't being met, how do we learn? How do we learn? (laughs) So right. Yeah. And then I felt trapped as the professor because I have to give you a grade based on you not doing these things. And I know why you're not doing these things. And they're totally legit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this first barrier really prevents a lot of gifted people Mm -hmm. from even, you know, entering through the doors. Mm -hmm. And so if there are ways that community can come together and realize what a big issue this is, and yes, you know, donations help. At the same time, Mm -hmm. we really need to address this on a structural level from an institutional level. What would that look like? Because I have such a hard time visioning something completely new when it comes to these big institutional systems. Like what would you like to see? Once we smash it all down, what's going to be left? That's a great question. I don't have all the answers. What? Well, I know, right? There's there's so much pressure to come on and to give all the answers. Just kidding. No, there's not. I said I was um, just going to show up as me. However, I have a recent encounter with academia. Actually, I recently... Yeah, you posted. uh Tell us all about it. Basically, long story short, I am now a proud PhD dropout. Yeah. And because I was encountering just the rigidity of academia, and I found this one program where it claimed to be, it's one of the very few programs in psychology that is supposedly framed and grounded in decolonial and higher oppressive liberatory work. And so my first question is, why hasn't the school given the land back? So let's start there. Let's give the land back. So all of these institutions are on stolen land. And as long as they continue to uphold power on stolen land, it will continue its Mm. colonial project. Can you break down what does give the land back? Like, what does that physically actually mean? Giving the land back, the rights of the land back to indigenous peoples. And until we do that, Anything that is taught as liberatory or decolonial cannot truly be. And in terms of smashing, I mean, even before smashing, it's 
give the land back. When we give the land back, then we have more space and more breath to say, okay, how do we want to structure these learning environments? How do we prioritize people in a way that is humanizing, Mm -hmm. that people are not numbers, people are not resources to extract information Mm -hmm. and experiences from? How do we Mm -hmm. tend to one another in community? How do we make this an equitable process? Mm. But this, you know, academia is very much hierarchical and it needs to be because it needs to continue to establish itself as a power on stolen land. Mm. And so while I don't have all the answers, that is usually the first place that I go. And from there, then that leaves us a lot of room to reimagine. So this is really a dumb question, and I'm going to own that because this is not oppositional. At all. It's just literally like, I don't know yet. So where do we go when we give the land back? Do we go to Europe? Do we go back to Europe where we came from? Like, literally, I'm not being oppositional. I'm just like, literally, how does that work? What? Where yes, do I go? Yes. Tell me where to go and I'll go. <laughs> These are really great questions. And so land back, and I am just a student. I'm a student on Turtle Island learning from Indigenous teachers. Land back can mean a lot of things. And land back means literally giving the land back. And it's returning land to people that have been displaced and letting them have sovereignty to say how this land should be tended to. Oh, so got it. Okay, that makes more sense because I'm like, do we get displaced? Because I'm not mad about that. But then, okay, so it's essentially when I give the land back, then you get to tell me whether I stay or go. Yes. Okay. And so when I'm thinking about a university or academia, the fact that it continues to uphold so much power and it has used knowledge and education as part of colonization, right? Mm-hmm. Then how would the outcome be good for mental health? It can't be. Mm. And so all of this, like in my mind, I can't make sense of it, how violent colonial institutions can teach and raise up folks that are going to be well and well-rounded and tended to, taken care of so that we can be resourced to care for one another. Yes, we can because we as people are powerful. We as community are powerful, but that is not how these schools are often set up. They have good intentions. And so the story that you shared about that student, like this is one of the unfortunate symptoms of Mm -hmm. the structure. And so I'm sure that there are experts, academic experts that would be able to offer, you know, many amazing ideas at the same time, you know, some basic ideas would be like, again, looking at curriculum, looking at who is teaching these courses, how are these people being vetted or screened? Mm -hmm. This idea of, I have a hard time saying this word, seniority. Mm. In academia, right? The Mm -hmm. more papers a person has published, the longer they've been in the field, somehow they're more qualified and, and hold more power. Like all of these ways of being then gets funneled into this field. And so then we get to the licensing part. We're learning all this stuff so that we can pass this exam. And then I think for a lot of people coming out of that, they go, wow, I need to heal from just going through that process in itself. Yeah. And feeling burned, feeling exploited, feeling silence, ignored, 
may be neglected entirely or even attempted to be erased, especially for Indigenous and Black students. So these are kind of big conversations that I love having because it requires our minds and our experiences and our, you know, diverse lived experiences to come together to piece together the possibilities. Yeah. Wow. And thank you for breaking it down like I'm a dummy because I was literally not understanding. As soon as you were like, give back the power, I'm really excited about that. Like that sounds, yes, like there's an expansion internally when I just think about what, yes, what that would be like. I'm, I'm just like a little dreamy over that. Everything changes. Everything changes. Yes. That's really inspiring. And I'm trying not to shame myself for not understanding that concept. But I'm also thinking like if I didn't understand that and I've been actively educating myself, I don't think most people understand that and what that would mean and what that would look like. So you heard it here, folks, and hopefully you'll hear it again in other places. And we're going to keep talking about it. I hope so. Yes. Learn about land back movement and follow in the lead of Indigenous activists and leaders and elders, they already know. And my connection to that is I am not drawing parallels at the same time. I know that the colonial tactics are very similar globally. Mm -hmm. And so coming from East Asia and many majority of places within Asia have been colonized at some point in some multiple times, having experienced that land back makes perfect sense to me is just give the power back. Let us have sovereignty and agency and determination of how to govern, how to take care of us and without paying my oppressors taxes. Yeah. And I'm just thinking of all of the like humanistic, community oriented ways that the world could change if people who had that sort of value system were in power. Mm. I mean, it would literally be the opposite of what we have now. I just, ugh. This is making me get reignited into like politics because I kind of like had to shut down for a minute after Biden got elected. And I'm like, okay, let me just fucking breathe for a second. But we don't have that much time because what the midterm elections are going to be next year and there's shit that has to be done. Oh my God. You're very inspiring. Thank you. And I give credit to my teachers. Yeah. What are your like, I mean, I'm sure there are countless, but if you can name, so Land Back Movement, what are some other like really important teachers that you could share with our listeners? One of the teachers I admire would be Dr. Jennifer Mullen, Decolonizing Therapy. Mm -hmm. Her work has been very impactful to me. So right alongside Land Back would be Black Liberation. And I speak as a settler, a diasporic settler, and I'm speaking to migrant and immigrant communities, especially from Asia, where a lot of us are here. We migrated to escape trauma, to escape Mm -hmm. imperialism, colonization, war. And so we embody trauma. And when we arrive here, we're seeking refuge. And at the same time, again, not speaking to white folks, that's a different story. At the same time, what becomes dangerous is if we take on whiteness 
And whiteness can look like entitlement, that I'm now entitled to be here because Mm -hmm. my people have been traumatized. I'm entitled to be here. I'm entitled to land. I'm entitled to material things. I'm entitled to exploit land as a resource. And so I'm speaking to my people with love that each of our communities that are here, apart from Indigenous and Black communities, we have a duty. We have a duty to the land and also the people of this land. So on the forefront of the work I do here is advocating for land back, Indigenous sovereignty, and Black liberation, and then liberation of all humans and other than humans, because humans are the ultimate colonizers of this planet. And then there's another part of me that, you know, does look back at Hong Kong and sees that my people are hurting too and desiring to be there to fight alongside them. But while I'm here, this is my my duty. Mm. Well, I was just thinking about how the colonial idea of pitting people of color against each other, that's kind of what I was hearing you speak to is, you know, if I don't want to say your people because it sounds really bad coming out of my mouth. But as you said, my people, Mm -hmm. right, fighting against other communities of color, that is how we stay oppressed one way. Yes. And so I look to these teachers like Dr. Jennifer Mullen, love the work of Erica Hart with, you know, Mm -hmm. also coming from intersectional lenses as well Mm -hmm. and listening, learning, following and deprioritizing myself, but at the same time, being able to draw from my lived experiences, my people's lived experiences to say, oh, I have a sense of what that pain is like. And so that pushes me to learn and to follow and to act. Mm. Mm. What you're talking about is so important. I almost just don't have anything to add. Like we can drop the mic right there. Well, We are coming close to the end of the hour and I haven't even asked the questions that are the questions of the show. Do you consider yourself a healer? Wow, that's a big question. I am healing Mm -hmm. and I know that I have gifts to hold space for others that desire healing. And I believe that as I heal, that those I'm in contact with, that I'm in relationship with, also the land and other than humans I'm in contact with also experience healing. I'm not sure about the label, but I know that healing is happening. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. What I've gathered after asking this question, you know, 160 plus times is that the way that people are coloring the word healer is how they answer it. And I say that everybody's a healer, just whether you tap into that gift or not. So in that realm... And a lot of people say to you, I don't want to call myself a healer, but if somebody else does it, I'm not mad about it. <laughs> so I think you're doing healing work. That's for sure. Thank you. And I see so, so many, like I experience healing from others too. Mm-hmm. So if somebody says that they experience healing through or around me, I also need to honor what's happening. I have to honor that experience. Yeah. Well, how do you feel about the term wounded healer? Hmm. That one is juicy. Right. Of course, each of us have experienced trauma in different ways, to different degrees, to different lengths and depths. And so when we are hurting, of course, the cliche is true that we are more likely to hurt others with our pain. And so I see it as a privilege that I have been able to receive healing and receive care 
And so from that place, I also want to extend that to others. And as I heal, I then feel more responsibility. As I heal, I feel more responsibility Mm. to tend to others Mm. because for many people, the opportunity to rest, to experience healing and restoration is a privilege. And so I know that I'm able to do the work that I do because others have tended to me. So I feel that duty to also extend care. And that's another really good reminder when we feel like we're not making a difference or we're not doing the big things we're supposed to do is that, yes, we're offering rest. We're offering just space. Mm-hmm. That's part of liberation. Mm-hmm. A lot of the healing or the tending to that I offer is through food. I love cooking mm. for others. I believe food is therapeutic, allowing people to just come and rest and to dialogue and to eat nourishing food is probably my favorite way to extend healing. And so we need that also in clinical and therapeutic spaces. There's this weird thing about, oh, we're not supposed to eat in sessions. Like, please eat. Yes, right? Let's eat together. Can we? It's a natural body function. Yes. And it's also so cultural that it's very awkward for a lot of cultures to just, people in cultures to just sit face to face and talk. It's like usually we would be sipping tea or eating. And so I hope that, you know, yes, there's the smashing. And at the same time, there's also more injection of love, of togetherness, of humanity into the ways that we extend healing to. You're a special human. I swear to God, I'm not like trying to butter you up or blow smoke up your ass. I'm just really appreciating that, that we're getting to have this conversation and that you're extending a, like a light to me right now that I feel like has been dimmed. So thank you. Mm, I'm breathing that in. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for your words. And I am so grateful that we get to share in this space where we can just dialogue and be. So I feel very welcomed in this space and you give me a lot to think about too. Mm. Are you in Austin? Is that right? Yes. Well, next time I come, I'm coming to dinner. I hope so. (laughs) I hope so. Because the way you talk about food, I'm super into that. Yeah, food's my favorite. It was being a therapist or becoming a chef. Those were my kind of two paths. So so cool. So do both. That's yeah. You're amazing. I love it. Well, we are almost at the end of the hour and I want to respect your time. Do you want to share with folks where they can find you and follow you? Sure, happy to. So to find me, you can visit my website, melodylee.com. Lee, it's spelled L-I. And on Instagram, it's melodyhope.com. Lee, and please visit us, inclusivetherapist.com at inclusivetherapist. Wonderful. And is there anything that we didn't talk about that you want to leave listeners with today or any summary popping into your head? You don't have to, so no pressure, but just thought I'd ask. I feel complete. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks so much to Melody for being a guest today on Conversations with a Wounded Healer. To find out more about Melody, you can visit our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And as always, thanks to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for the album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.